Hello everyone, welcome back. We have another four minutes of threads this week. I usually space these episodes out, having them as an occasional treat for you, but I got an email at the weekend from a listener from Sheffield correcting me on a wee mistake I made in last week's episode. And so when I started cracking open the maps and looking into it, I was back in the threads mood and I thought, okay, let's just do another episode. So let's start with last week's mistake. We ended last week's episode with the staff arguing in the bunker and then a message comes through on the radio from Ribble Valley Police saying they're nearly out of fuel. And I said, wow, this shows how desperate things are. Ribble Valley Police are in Lancashire. And if they're calling out to Sheffield for help, then that implies that every other area near them is destroyed or cut off. But one of my listeners from Sheffield, uh, Dean, sent me an email saying it's actually Riveln Valley Police, not Ribble Valley. And yes, Riveln Valley is an area on the western outskirts of Sheffield, which makes uh, far more sense than them having a communication from a police station in Lancashire. Besides, with the historic rivalry between Yorkshire and Lancashire, our Sheffield lads might have been expected to tell Ribble Valley to get lost and find their own fuel. So the message is from Riveln Valley. And if I open the map, I see that that is an area, as I say, in the west of the city. In fact, you probably wouldn't call it the city at all. Um, Street View shows us that it is um, very lush and green and rural. And it seems to be the point where Sheffield begins to open itself out into the lovely Peak District National Park. In this scene, we hear that Rivlin Valley Police have got through to the Bochief Works Depot. This is also on the west side of Sheffield, although more to the southwest of the city. We know that the terrible nuclear strike on Sheffield was targeted on the Tinsley Viaduct, which lies to the northeast of the city, so relatively far then from Bochief. So it makes sense then, uh, the Bochief Depot is in a relatively unscathed part of the city, unscathed by blast and fire. Relatively, of course. So they're at least still alive and able to receive crackly radio communications. Also lying to the east of Sheffield is RAF Finningley, which hosted V-bombers during the Cold War, and which is, of course, referenced in the film. So it's all kicking off to the east of Sheffield. To the west lies the (laughs) radioactive serenity of the Peak District, which includes the lovely little town of Buxton, where we know that later in the film, Ruth and a lot of other refugees head. But we'll come to that later, of course. Interestingly, whilst I was mucking about on Google Maps, looking at Buxton and Bochief and Rivlin Valley, I'd recognise another name on the map. South of Buxton is the Derbyshire village of Moniash, which has a nuclear war connection. It has actually been featured on this podcast previously, back in November 2019, when I interviewed the director Daniel Vernon about his BBC documentary, A British Guide to the End of the World. Here's a clip from the documentary about what was going on in 
sleepy little Moniash in the 1980s. If you happen to be having a quiet drink in the bull's head at Moniash when the Russians decide to attack, then you can relax in the knowledge that you're at the centre of one of Britain's nuclear defence systems. And this is the reason Derbyshire police have installed here in the pub an early warning system which is operated by landlord Decio Tatani. Well, if you think that sounds crazy, then listen to this. They haven't yet sent Decio his warning siren. This is how he warns the rest of the villages of Moniash. The Russian are coming! The Russian are coming! The Russian are coming! So that is one of the horrors of nuclear war, one of the many horrors. The fact that nowhere is safe from it. Not even the sleepiest, loveliest little village tucked all green and cosy in the Peak District. Even that little village, Moniash, is infected by the frantic need to prepare for nuclear war. Okay, so back to the film. We hear that the Rivlin Valley, not Ribble Valley police, have made contact with Bochief Works Depot. So I looked for that on the map. Bochief lying to the southwest of the city. And I spot yet another name on the map, which I recognise from threads. Dor and Totley. The Dor and Totley Tennis Club appears later in the film in one of its most iconic moments. Yes, it's our dreaded traffic warden. When he is seen, he is patrolling a fence behind which lots of food rioters have been penned. And if you look closely at the fence, you'll see it has an innocent little sign pinned to it from its earlier innocent life. And it is Dor and Totley Tennis Club. So the rioters have all been penned inside the wire fencing of the tennis courts. But we'll come to that, of course, in a later episode. But whilst we're also mucking about on the map, uh, looking at Bochief, it's interesting to note that Bochief had an ROC monitoring post during the Cold War, which was sited in the overflow car park of the nearby Abbeydale Golf Club. According to the website of Subterranea Britannica, who mark all locations of underground interest in Britain, the Bochief ROC post was reported as having been heavily vandalised by the year 2014 and has since been filled in with concrete. It's lost to us now. Still there underneath the golf course car park, but uh, filled in with concrete. In this uh, same scene in the bunker, there is, uh, of course, lots of shouting and squabbling amongst the stressed bunker staff. So it's sometimes hard to pick out exactly what's being said. So I turned to my copy of the script, which isn't a direct copy of the film script. There are some tiny, subtle changes, but it helps me at least to work out some of the hurried dialogue. And I'm able to pick out that one of the staff in the background here says, as they're all clamouring to be heard over one another, what about Nutton Road? The line in the script says, what about Nutton Road and Grenicide? What's it like there? Here's the clip and see if you can pick out that he's referring to Nutton Road and Grenicide. Yes, I'll pass the message on. I expected to do. What about Nutton Road and Grenicide? 
So why is there someone in the council bunker asking about those two locations? Let's investigate. I turn to Google Street View and I wander along Nutton Road in Sheffield. Looks very ordinary, just a quiet, uh, quite dull residential area. But at one end of the road, there's a very ugly, squat brick shop. It's a branch now of Heron Food Store. But it looks strange. It looks almost like a bunker, although it has windows cut into it. But it's low and it's squat. There's no decoration on it, nothing fancy. It looks like a Lego house made of brick. And there's a big access road winding down the back of it. So I wonder if this was during the Cold War, during the time of Threads, was it some kind of council storage depot or perhaps a food buffer depot? I put this question out on Twitter and one of my followers, John, was kind enough to dig out the information that yes, this building during the 80s was a council public works depot. So that will be why it's being mentioned in Threads. Something uh, for the uses of civil defence must have been stored in the film, perhaps in reality, at the Nutton Road Council Depot. Now the line in the script also quotes uh, Grenocide. He asks what's happening at Nutton Road and Grenocide. Grenocide is a suburb of Sheffield, again lying to the north of the city. Well, I went into my archive and I dug out some civil defence plans from Yorkshire which had been written in the mid-1980s. And yes, Grenocide appears in the plans. There's a park in Grenocide, which is listed as a possible burial site for the masses of nuclear war dead that Sheffield would have. Grenocide Park on Blacksmith Lane. It's one of many, many locations listed for the Sheffield area amongst various other parks and golf courses and playing fields. And here's an interesting snippet for you. Another location on the list is Whiteley Woods on Rustling's Road. Well, Rustling's Road is where the fictional Beckett family, Ruth's family, live. I've shared the list of potential mass grave sites on my private Atomic Hobo Facebook page, where we can discuss the nuclear threat and I sometimes share my research. That's a Patreon reward available to those at the Tsar Bomba level and above. Now, there were proposed mass grave sites all over Sheffield, so I'm sure that this isn't why Grenocide is mentioned in the film, but at this point I know of no other Cold War significance to the suburb of Grenocide in Sheffield. So if any of my Sheffield listeners do know, then please get in touch. Okay, the scene now changes, and we're given more of those blue subtitles on the screen which impart information to us, and which give Threads its documentary feel. Normally in the film, when these uh, words appear, they're accompanied by a clattering sound of a teletype machine. But since the bomb dropped, that sound effect has been silenced. Now the words appear in the same glowing blue text, but with no sound. It's as if the film has started to wilt. The text tells us here that we are now one week after the attack 
and that food stocks are controlled by central government representatives. In the next shot, the camera is outside a fence and there is a sign on it saying Food Buffer Depot. We've looked at Food Buffer Depots in a previous episode. I think I called it something like Willy Wonka's factories or Willy Wonka's nuclear factories. I said that because they were crammed with basic foodstuffs, yes, but also with sweets and biscuits, as they would have been needed as a quick sugar release for energy. These huge buffer depots uh, were dotted across the country, many of them dating from the Second World War, and they were used to store emergency food stocks, which, in time of war, would be carefully rationed and released to local food officers, who would then organise their distribution down to the emergency feeding centres set up on their patch. That was the plan, at least. The scene here outside the food buffer depot, it looks like winter. It even seems that there's a frost or a, a light snow on the ground. But as we discussed last week, this represents the initial heavy fallout, which could, in some circumstances, present as visible white dust. We know that it's not winter, of course, unless you choose to describe this as the onset of nuclear winter, because we know that the attack happened in May. Now, of course, the buffer depot is highly protected. It's behind a high fence, which is padlocked shut, and it's patrolled by armed men. That's because its contents, uh, bland biscuits, bags of flour, boiled sweets, uh, packets of yeast, they are now the most precious things in the country. Never mind the crown jewels down at the Tower of London, this is where it's at. We see an armed guard patrol the area. He's wearing a gas mask and he consults an orange device slung around his neck. I assume that's a dosimeter to measure radiation. The rule would be that officials on duty outside after nuclear war, uh, police, uh, military, etc., would wear devices to measure their personal radiation exposure and would not stay outdoors if they had exceeded their set war emergency dose. So that was the upper limit that you were allowed to be exposed to. So there was a set upper war emergency dose, although this could be, you know, the rules could be bent slightly if the person was engaged on vital tasks. So we have the military and the police, uh, civil defence workers, etc., all bundled up in protective gear, wearing the radiation meters so that they don't stay outside too long. Compare that to the <laughs> utter lack of protection the public would have. You know, nothing. <laughs> nothing except what they'd managed to scrabble together for themselves. And even then, you would only have it if it had survived the blast and the fire and the looting and the theft. Civil defence in the 80s in Britain was look after yourself. Don't expect the government to do it. The guard we see patrolling the buffer depot is, uh, he's faceless. He's wearing a dark helmet and a dark gas mask. So he doesn't have the simple, comforting familiarity of a human face. Makes him instantly sinister, of course, and instantly impervious to any appeals from the locals over the fence. 
No one could recognise him and shout across the fence, but, but you're my Uncle Billy! Or, but, but you're Auntie Linda's son! How, how can you leave her to starve? He is stripped of all familiarity and all humanity. Might as well be a robot, of course. We, on this side of the fence, can't recognise him and so can't appeal to him. And he can't recognise us as he's been armed against us and told that we're the enemy, we're animals, we're starving and dirty and violent and savage, so carry a gun and protect yourself from them. So both sides here have been depersonalised. He is faceless and armed and anonymous. We are savage, dirty, irradiated animals. The blue text returns to the screen and tells us no food distribution likely until two weeks after the attack. Okay, why? We know that the food is there. We know it's been stockpiled in the buffer depots and that's why they're being so carefully guarded. So what's the hold up, people? Get the food out to the survivors, why not? Well, the official reason is that the pre-war protect and survive advice was to get yourself two weeks worth of stockpiled food and stay at home, living off your own supply of food, looking after yourselves, treating your own wounds, burying your own dead. So if you were a good citizen, and if the shelves hadn't been stripped bare in panic buying, and if you had enough spare cash to afford to buy all those supplies... And if your supplies hadn't then been destroyed in the attack, well, you would have cupboards full of two weeks' worth of nice tins. In which case, why are you sniffing round the buffer depot, peasant? Here's the advice from Protect and Survive. Now food. Stock enough for everybody for 14 days. You may not be able to cook anything hot, so buy foods you can eat cold and that will not go bad. Buy food well wrapped or in tins. By the way, don't forget your tin opener and bottle opener. You will do best to buy lots of different kinds of foods if you can, so that you won't get bored with too much of the same thing. Stock up with meats, vegetables, fruit, tinned or powdered milk, and special foods for babies or invalids. You will also need some sweet things, like sugar or jam, and biscuits. Keep the food in a cool, dry place until you have to take it to your fallout room. Foods that will go bad quickly should be the first to be eaten. Try to ration everything so that it will last out. Another reason why the food wouldn't be dished out for two weeks is that, arguably, the authorities wouldn't want to waste it by distributing it instantly. By withholding it for two weeks, they could be quite sure that they wouldn't be squandering rations on the injured, the sick and the weak who were just going to die anyway. If they wait two weeks, then the weakest survivors will have been 
carried off. And you can give those precious rations to the tough, hardy folk who have endured and who have proved themselves worthy and capable of being useful labourers for the state. There is also the practical question of fallout and movement. By allowing an initial two-week period to pass, it means fallout can decrease and perhaps some preliminary work can be done on clearing some paths through the rubble. After all, you can't distribute food if you can't move. Our next scene takes us back to the cellar in the Beckett's big Victorian house. The first thing we see is the bucket they're using for a toilet. Again, this was advised in Protect and Survive. You would be told to take a bucket and line it with plastic bags. Of course, you would have to dispose of the contents of those plastic bags, but at the same time, you cannot go outside. So you were advised to place these horrible bags just outside your fallout room, and you can get rid of them later. Just another reason why conditions inside your fallout room would be atrocious. The Beckett parents are forking cold food out of a tin. They offer some to Ruth, but she is in no state to eat. She's wrapped in a blanket, huddled over, crying, and she's rocking back and forth. Her parents aren't particularly distressed by that sight, suggesting it's been going on for a while. Poor Ruth. Her mum holds a cracked plate out to her. It looks just like dog food. It's disgusting. And she says... Well, she says something so sad to Ruth to try and cajole her to eat. She reminds her that she's pregnant. It's not just you now, love. The baby has to eat as well. It's not just you. Here's a clip. Ruth, love. Come on, love. You'll have to eat something. But you'll have to, love. It's not just you now, you know. The baby needs some food as well. Come on, I can't love. about this baby anymore. Oh, Ruth. I wish she was dead. Don't say things like that, There's love. no point. There's no point with Jimmy dead. But you don't know He is, he love. is. I know he is. Don't be sad. Oh, oh, we're breathing in all this radiation. All the time, my baby. Oh, my baby. Oh, my It's a terribly sad scene. Mrs Beckett is doing what mums do, trying to get her sick, sad daughter to eat, trying to care for her, offering her food as if it will all be okay if you just eat up your dinner like a good girl. But Ruth, with no illusions at all left, doesn't care. There is no mother love, there is no care, there is no meal, no strength that will ever repair the damage done. Jimmy is gone, and her baby's future is gone. There's an episode in my podcast archive about 1980s nuclear pop music, and I think I mentioned Breathing by Kate Bush, which is a very haunting song, sung from the point of view of an unborn baby who's taking in fallout via his mother's body. Brilliant song. I do recommend you check that out if you don't know it. Then we go to the Kemp's house, and they are faring far worse. 
Mrs. Kemp is horribly burnt and Mr. Kemp is constantly retching with radiation sickness. They're huddled in the battered remnants of their inner refuge and over the horrible, wet, bubbling sounds of Mr. Kemp's vomiting, we hear Mrs. Kemp's faint, weeping voice as she cries about the loss of her children. All of them gone, she cries. That echoes a line from When the Wind Blows. After the bomb is dropped, when, um, when the old man picks up the phone and he just says, All dead. All dead. I think he's literally referring to the phone line. The phone line's dead. Everything's dead. So Mrs. Kemp is quietly, softly weeping. All of them gone. And Mr. Kemp, he, he gasps, wipes his mouth, and he manages to say, We don't know that. Poor man, he's trying to soothe and to comfort her, just as Mrs. Beckett was doing a moment ago to Ruth, offering her a plate of food as though that would make it all better. We don't know that, he says, and it's it's surely just a reflexive thing to say. It's like scooping up a, a child when they've fallen and skinned their knees and saying, oh, you're all right, you're all right, even though they've obviously hurt themselves. It's as if you can sweep it all away just by saying, no, 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 it's all right. And he says, no, we don't know that. Even though surely he does know, he must know that they're all dead. It's been a week now since the bomb dropped, he must know. But despite the trauma and the horror, he still remains a dad and a husband, and so his reflex is to care and to try and make it all right. And so he says to Mrs Kemp, we don't know that. Almost identical to what Mrs Beckett has just said to Ruth when she sobs that Jimmy is dead. Oh, you don't know that, love. They're both trying to soothe and comfort and the only way they can do that is by reaching for ignorance. We don't know. That's really all they have to offer is comfort. All we can hope for is ignorance. We go back to the basement beneath the town hall where the staff are trying to dig themselves out. But one of them exclaims that bloody four floors have come down on this lot. The air vents are blocked, filthy water is dripping through, everyone is getting grimy and weak and slow and bad-tempered. Here's a clip which says that most of the town hall has collapsed on top of them. How much stuff do you think's on top of us? Most of town hall, I should think. Well, when will you be able to get to us? What about the army? What about the military? As a horrible reminder of how conditions must be down there, we see one of the staff urinating in the tiny makeshift toilet over in the corner, which is positioned right beside the bunk beds. We focus on a very tense and bad-tempered conversation between Clive, the council leader, and some of his staff. One of them is pleading that he must get food. If we can't release food, then they'll never get control. That is the key thing here, after all. After nuclear war, the only way to control the population will be through food. Because money won't mean anything anymore. Neither does punishment. You know, say to a criminal, okay, prison. (laughs) You're going to put me in prison? Well, great. That means a bed, a roof over my head, thick walls to keep out the fallout and you'll be obliged to feed me. Well, brilliant. Throw me in, throw away the key. 
So the only way to punish and reward and exercise control will be through food, by giving it or by withholding it. But our food officer is trapped underground, powerless, and the food buffer depots are locked shut and all the roads are blocked. And then we see Clive, Clive Sutton, the council leader, showing a very hard-hearted attitude. Until now, Sutton has been like a gentle big bear of a man, calm and kind and decent. But now, as his staff argue about food and whether it should be released to the public, Clive says this. Look, what's the point of wasting food on people who are going to die anyway? So above ground, with our surviving families, our Kemp's and our Beckett's, we see them trying to comfort and soothe one another. But down here, in the world of the officials and the powerful, the men in suits who are cut off from the softening, civilising influence of family, we see people go to the opposite direction, developing a harder and more merciless attitude. And yes, it's a shock to hear it coming from Big Clive Sutton, the decent man who, in his office, had framed photos of his wife and his cute dogs on his desk. The medical officer has the same hard attitude as Clive to the hungry population above ground, saying it's their tough luck if they're starving, they should have stocked up. And now they're coming out of the shelters, he says, as though the public are insects, pests who are now swarming out into the daylight. As this uh, uncomfortable conversation goes on, we can hear a scratchy voice on the radio in the background begging for assistance. I assume this is the police who are pleading for reinforcements to keep a mob from breaking into Mossborough Fire Station to get out food supplies. The voice on the radio says that he has men guarding it, but he has to pull them back, as they've had 200 rads as it is. Now that will refer to the war emergency dose, which we mentioned earlier. The police manual of home defence, which I have here on my desk, says that the war emergency dose, that's the recommended limit which no one should exceed, should be 75 rads. But, as I mentioned earlier, this can be stretched up to 150 rads for very vital tasks, but that would be the total upper limit. You cannot go beyond 150 rads. Well, in this uh, radio communication, we hear that the police at Mossborough Fire Station will have to be pulled back as they've had 200 rads as it is. So things are so desperate that they're going well, well over the war emergency dose. Again, showing that the the rules which are written in peacetime don't stand a chance when they're up against the reality of nuclear war. Now, we're more than halfway through Threads now, and I I love doing these episodes, so I've been thinking, of course, you know, what film will I turn to afterwards when we finish looking at Threads? Which nuclear war film will I give the four-minute treatment to next? And I've decided to do When the Wind Blows. But I really enjoy these close looks at nuclear war films, so I'm also going to do the war game. 
But that one, the look at the war game, will be for patrons only. And you can access that for £3 a month. And you can join at my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, where all my extra episodes are and where all my future ones will be, including my four minutes of the war game, which I will start soon. Let me thank my newest patrons who have joined in the last week. That's David Little, Madeline Peterson and Kevin Drobetch. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook as Nuclear Britain or at my website juliemcdowell.com and I'll be back next week with another episode.